This is the Living Vertizano podcast, brought to you by The Church at Riverstone, a fellowship of the Church of the Nazarene in Madera, California. Our episode today focuses on the Last Supper, found in Matthew 26, 17-30. Together, we will be discussing seasons of preparation and Christ's extension of grace to his enemies. Hi, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Natasha. I'm Brittany. I'm Derek. And we are the Living Vertizontal Podcast. And we're excited to be back with you again this week as we continue this journey through Matthew that we have been on for some time now. Um, As a quick reminder, last week we began our work through Matthew chapter 26. We looked at verses 1 through 16. And within that, we examined the accounts of the plot to kill Jesus, Jesus's anointing by the woman, and also Judas's plan to betray Jesus. Uh, And with that, in the midst of those three different stories, um, the conversation we had discussed our willingness to trade everything for Jesus. And so this week, we're going to just pick up where we left off, um, looking at Matthew 26, verses 17 through 30, And here, uh, we're going to be exploring the familiar passage of the Last Supper, uh, the Passover meal that Jesus shares with his disciples immediately before he is betrayed. And so I believe uh, today we have Derek reading for us. So Derek, would you mind reading Matthew 26, 17 through 30? On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you do not mean you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who betrayed him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the, new, of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new, with you in my father's kingdom when they had sung it when they had sung a hymn they went out to the mount of olives all right thank you for reading that derek um as we move into our conversation about this to to get us started there's two um i think statements that i would like to make and one is just connecting it to our conversation from last week where At the beginning of chapter 26, um, Jesus makes the statement uh, in verse 2, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. 
And last week we had said that that was Jesus beginning the process of trying to um, give a new set of lenses for the disciples to view Passover through, um, kind of not necessarily overriding or replacing um, the Exodus story from Exodus, but bringing fuller meaning into the present of this conversation. Um, and so I, I think in our passage now today, as the Passover meal is actually being celebrated, we see that conversation continuing where Jesus is expanding their understanding of what the Passover is and what who the Passover lamb is. And, and essentially, spoiler alert, he is the Passover lamb. Um, and then the other thing that I think would be helpful as we move into a conversation about uh, verses 17 through 30 is this passage, um, even though from a headings perspective, there's only one heading, could probably be broken down into three different pieces. Um, and so the first piece is a piece that can be like defined by the word preparation. So you have verses 17 through 19 for that, where they're be preparing for the Passover. There's this conversation about preparation for the Passover. And then the second section is um, verses 20 through 25, which now it's happening at that, the like at the time of the meal, but specifically this could be understood as like a, an additional prediction of his betrayal, right? This is a conversation that's happening between him and the disciples about his impending betrayal or the betrayal that has happened. Um, and then lastly, you have verses 26 through 30, which are, can be simply understood as the institution of the Lord's Supper. Um, and so with those three things in mind, it might make it a little easier for us to reference as we work through this. Um, but what are you guys seeing? What's sticking out to you? What's challenging you? What might Jesus be saying? I think the, the first thing that, that really sticks out is that they came to Jesus. The disciples came to Jesus. It wasn't like he had to call them to this like need for preparation for the Passover meal. And so I think that's the first thing that, that jumps out to me is just, you know, we've kind of talked about how there, there's bits and pieces where they get it and they don't always get it, but it seems like right. there is this element of, of understanding that we need to be preparing and that, that Jesus doesn't always have to, like they know what to do. They're getting to the place where they know what to do. They don't always have to be told. And so they come to him, hey, like, where do you want us to do this? And with that, like, Jesus's response is a response of somewhat ambiguity, at least from what we're reading, right? He says, um, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says. Um, and it goes on, but, like, I it's not like we live in a really big area or anything, but even if we were hanging out in just, I don't know, the community of Riverstone and somebody told me, go and find a certain man and tell him that's pretty ambiguous. And I would have no idea what I'm doing. And I would ask lots of questions at that point and be like, uh, okay, so you're gonna have to zero this down. Like help me understand where I'm supposed to go. But, uh, we don't see that conversation ensuing here. It, which we have seen, conversations like that happened before. So you would think that if it happened, it would be here, but it's not. It, the kind of 
playing into what you were saying, Derek, where it, it seems like there's glimpses of the disciples getting it, not getting it throughout. And it seems like this might be a glimpse of one of those times where they're getting it. They ask the question, Jesus gives the answer and they respond. So as I read this, I kind of read it with a little bit of comedy in, in mind. I'm so on the one hand, I hear what you're saying about the uncertainty of who this Mm -hmm. man is, but I can't help but feel like as the writers of Matthew are sitting down to write this out, they're kind of, you know, him hawing around. Well, okay. How do we tell this story? Remember there was that guy, what was his name? You remember what his name is? And they're like trying, no, I can't remember what his name. Okay. Just write a certain, no, it was man. a certain man. There was, was a specific a certain, man. He was specific. We can't remember the details around it, but that that's what it was. So that, I mean, that to me is comical. I obviously, this is so much speculation. Um, so I don't know, but then also this piece where, they send, so Jesus sends them out. And like you said, they obey immediately. And, um, I'm just, I guess I'm just struck by the fact that this parallels almost perfectly what's happened at the beginning of the week. This is now Thursday and he's Jesus. He is sending them to go and make preparations for the Passover meal. And he has just sent them on the previous Sunday to go and, fetch a donkey from a certain man, right? You'll find this donkey tied up and they just got to kind of take it on on faith. And when the guy asks him, what are you doing? He's just supposed to respond with, well, the Lord needs it, you know? And so like, and that's how you just, you just proceed, you know, and, and this is supposed to be fine. And so I'm guessing that the disciples having experienced this on Sunday and thinking, well, that was weird, but you know, Hey, it it worked worked out on Sunday. (laughs) So then they're going to go ahead and be like, okay, find this certain man. Well, you know, okay, Jesus, you, you've, you've pulled through in the past. And so why, why shouldn't I learn from my experience and expect you this time, this certain man who you've, who you've sent us to, he probably knows already that you're coming or that we're coming and, and he'll be expecting, expecting this request. So not to say like, not to contradict what you just said in the, like, he probably knows what's coming, but as you were talking I reread that part of the passage again and began to think like, just like the donkey conversation, I don't think the person whose donkey it was knew that Jesus was, or that these people were coming to ask for the donkey, but they said the Lord needs it. And he permitted it to happen, gave him the donkey went on. I, I began to wonder about this part as well. Maybe they did already have arrangements ahead of time. Maybe they didn't. I'm not sure. But could you imagine people coming up to you and saying, the Lord told us that we're going to have Passover at your house and there's no challenging, there's no like need of an explanation. There's just a, a welcomeness. There's a hospitality that is present with him. It's something culturally I don't think we understand very well because it's so right. foreign to our individualistic society, whereas they were very community-driven. And so this would have been more of a normal request, kind of like how Jesus invited himself over to Zacchaeus's house, you know? like he. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's difficult for us to, to fathom or get with because we're so removed from that sort of hospitality. Yeah. And like, like you said, we are, we are so individualistic in our understanding of life that we couldn't even imagine somebody walking up, knocking on the front door and saying, Hey, we're coming in for dinner tonight. 
Like that would just blow our mind. Most people would at best laugh at worst, maybe even call the cops like, and, and so I just, I don't know. I, I, what would it be like for us to have a similar level of hospitality? Like, again, I asked the question and I recognize, I don't even know that we could fully understand it. Like you said, because we live, we, we are a, we are just so far away culturally from where they were at. But what, what would it be like for us to have this kind of hospitality? Maybe we need to zero in a little bit and say like, so yes, we have different cultures and society in general, but what if we were to boil it down and talk about within the church? Like while the cultures are different, we should start to be getting closer to the heart of hospitality that this man had within the church and the propensity towards hospitality. But even still, I think that an expectation like this would be something that would be difficult, even with people within the church where it it would be, it would still be seen as maybe an inconvenience or something that like taboo, like you just don't do that. You don't just say, Hey, we're going to, be at your house tonight for dinner because it wouldn't be received well. Well, we do that. Like as a church, I feel like we just ask people like, Hey, we're coming over to swim tonight. Right. Hey, youth group at your house tonight. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe there's a little bit of that. And it's been pretty neat. I feel like the call to preparation would have meant nothing if they weren't willing to participate. There's something to like, yes, Jesus could have done it on his own, but he didn't want to do it on his own. Like we know that like we have been created to be in community. And so like, as you talk about this idea of community, like if you're going to be a part of something like you, you have to be willing to participate in what's taking place. Jesus all along has been trying to get them to participate not only in life with him, but living out this, his kingdom on on earth. And so like the prepper, the preparation would have meant nothing if they weren't willing to participate. And had they not already experienced some of the things that they experienced saying to go and like say, Hey, we're here for dinner. Um, would have probably been like a, I don't know, it would have been pretty foreign, I would think. Or like, I just can't imagine going to knock on somebody's door and be like, we're here and we're going to take over your kitchen. Well, and it, it, Passover isn't just another di- dinner. No, like, it, is it is substantial. It is like the biggest dinner of the year. It's Christmas, baby. <laughs> oh, be more. I guess it would be more like the equivalent of what we make Thanksgiving out to be. Like, you know. And make a big I mean, meal out of it. We've made a Passover meal and elements of it, and it has taken all day. So for somebody to come up and be like, hey, we're having Passover at your house tonight, it's like, oh, okay. Well, I wonder <laughs> if they had more time to prepare. That's why I asked yeah, you about the no, Thursday thing. I don't know if it was actually. Yeah, they, they, they may have. So Absolutely. the disciples prepared the meal. So at least you were like, okay, you're going to take care of the food. I'm just providing the space. Sometimes that's all we have to do. I think what you pointed out is really important, though, Derek, because I think a lot of times we, 
I guess, undersell the importance of the preparation. Just like you were talking about like this, this journey where they're just walking with Jesus and they're being sent to do these like menial tasks, like go get a donkey from this guy. But yet even in those things, right, they're learning to grow in their faith and they're learning to trust him more. And I think that that's something that we have to remember in the seasons that feel dry is that there's a preparation period and there's, there's more importance in that preparation than I think we will ever realize in the immediacy. Jesus is like Mr. Miyagi. Like, (laughs) 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 it makes no sense. Why am I doing this task? Wax on, wax off. Oh, wax on, wax off being a block. Yeah, Yeah, I got you. Why am I doing (laughs) that? I got you. Inside and outside block. But yet, it seems like, why, why am I wasting time waxing a car? Because there's more to it than that. But you can't see it. But mm-hmm. I do. Going to get a donkey seems insignificant and like kind of crazy. But yet it laid the foundation for what they would need. And yet it's even more crazy to walk up and say, we're having the Passover at your house tonight. But it, had they not had they not had the experience yep. with the... With exactly. The, uh, uh, you know, what happened before, like, yeah. I think you'd be like, there's no way I'm doing this. Like, you must be crazy. I can see, like, I can think about times in my life when I've done things and have, I specifically think about like my job. So one of my jobs I worked as, um, I worked in quality and I had to do chart reviews, like a lot of chart reviews. And I did them all day long, five days a week, eight hours a day, just reviewed charts. And it was kind of boring. Um, but I got really good at it because I did it so much. And now in my current role, I do chart reviews very quickly because I'm proficient because I spent years doing nothing but chart reviews. Mm. And that's given me the confidence to do what I'm supposed to do now. And that's just one element element of my job, but it allows me to do other parts of my job even better. I feel like that is perfectly applicable to like our spiritual well-being, our spiritual state and this idea of preparation and it leading to proficiency because there are a lot of disciplines that we can participate in in our spiritual life, prayer, like the, the disciplines at the forefront, right, are like reading scripture or prayer or um, meditation or things like that, fasting. And in the moment, especially when you begin to, like when you're at the beginning of one of those, practicing one of those disciplines, in the moment you look at it and go, I do not see how this is going to like ultimately lead me to be closer to Jesus because I'm sitting here reading this book and I don't understand what it's saying. But as we spend more time and as we practice more and more over time, we can look back and recognize, Oh, like I see what it did. I see how it has translated into my relationship with Jesus. I think it's a reminder to, or maybe some it's encouragement to continue pressing on, even when 
what we're doing seems like it isn't making a big impact. If God's called you to it, then stick with it because he has, he has purpose. He has intention with it. It's interesting that the very next thing that is brought up in this, in scripture is after, after they've prepared the meal and it's evening, Jesus tells them one of you is going to betray me. So after all of this preparation and they've trusted him to go and, and look for this man and they've, you know, they've committed to participate. Then they hear one of you is going to betray me. That had been very difficult to understand. I mean, I'm sure for everybody except the one who knew. Yeah. Like that statement makes less sense than anything else before makes less sense than them being told to go tell somebody that the Lord needs a donkey less sense than them walking into the city to find a certain man to say, we're having Passover at your house tonight. Like it makes absolutely no sense. Is this the first time that he tells them that it was, it's going to be one of them? I, I think that's a good question. And I think like for us as readers of scripture, we know that we know that one of the betrayers or that the betrayer is one of the disciples already. Spoiler alert. Right. Sorry. Sorry for <laughs> We've those already who been don't there. Know. So <laughs> yeah. So like as a reader, we know that. But I think as the disciple in this meal, we don't know that. And so in this time of celebration, yes, there's remembrance that's happening, but ultimately it's it's like a, a remembrance of what we have been delivered from. And so this is a, a celebratory meal of, of God's, like God with us, which is ironic, the fact that it's Jesus hanging out with them, having this meal, because that's literally God with us. But like God was with us as he delivered us from, from Egypt and we, we can celebrate this. So in the midst of this celebration, Jesus like drops the bomb and he's like, I've been telling you that I'm going to be crucified, that the, that the religious leaders are going to be like crucifying me. And it's going to come as a result of one of you guys betraying me. And the responses aren't like, no way. Like that's not the response. The response is, is it me? Am I the one? I think it would be more like, it's not me, right? Like, please tell me it's <laughs> well, not it, me. Yeah, but their response isn't confidently, right. no, it's not. Like, no, that's not, we would never do that. Their response is, oh, no, is it me? It's as if they've learned humility. A little bit, yeah. Like, I mean. Don't worry, P- Peter's, Peter's going to mess that up know, in a second. I know, so <laughs> as I say that. That's the time for next week. <laughs> yeah, though. They, yeah, it seems as though. There is there's an element of maybe he sees more than what I see of mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. What would be normally a time of, of celebration um, quickly becomes something that I don't think that they were really anticipating. Well, it's like it's like they've just had that moment where it's like, oh, it just got real. Yeah. Like I, I guess I think about this may sound a little morbid, but I mean Jesus talked about death, so like I think about, we all know that we will die one day. But it's not until we face moments of like a close friend dying or going to a funeral or when we're on our deathbed that all of a sudden it becomes real that we're going to die. 
right? Like there may be times every once in a while where like for some reason the thought comes into your mind and it hits you and it gets really heavy and you're like, oh my goodness. But for the most part, we don't live our life on a moment by moment basis with this weight over our head that we're going to die. It's not until that comes to the forefront that all of a sudden it gets real and we, we come face to face with that reality. And it's like the disciples have been hearing these claims all along of I'm going to die. I'm on my way to, to the cross. But in this moment, it, it's more real than it has ever been before for them. It makes me wonder why Jesus even makes this statement, like what his intention is in this. We talked a little bit at our table on Sunday about how Judas at this point, we know that he's already been paid. So for him to back out of this would probably result in his death anyhow, right? Um, or at least some sort of imprisonment or punishment of some sort. So he's in deep already. Mm. Um, and and I don't know, I guess I just wonder, was this Jesus like trying to extend grace to him one more time, you know, to try to call him back? Um, I don't know. I, it's speculative. Um, but I just I have, I wonder why did he ask that question? So, or make that, I guess, why did he make that statement? I don't know that I necessarily have an answer other than when I look at this and this was a conversation that was had in part on Sunday. I don't know how much in part because I was with the kids and so I didn't get to hear a lot of it, but you see that all of the disciples call Jesus Lord, except for Judas, Judas calls him rabbi and Last week, we talked about how it seems as though there was like this switch that flipped in Judas where he was whole shot rejecting the idea that Jesus was the Messiah. He no longer he was no longer buying into it. Like early way early on, we read that Peter confesses that you are the Messiah in front of all the disciples. And it seems as though that is the 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 lens and like the the I don't know, marching orders that everybody gets in line with going forward. And so that's the understanding that they're operating off of until you get to the, like the, the first, what is it? 16 verses of 26 where Jesus is anointed by the woman. And then Judas gets frustrated about that. And then we read that he goes and decides to agree to betray him. So it's, in that moment, something changed, and he is now rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. Fast forward now into this exchange where Jesus makes the statement that one of you will betray me. All of them, you know, make this statement, oh, not not us, not uh, surely not me, right? Um, and then Jesus, when Judas asks the same question, responds essentially, yep, it's you. And... Judas has done all of this betrayal in secret to this point. Nobody knows about it. That's why the disciples, uh, again, it's like a bomb was dropped on them right now. Nobody had any idea this was going on. And Jesus, in this small exchange, even though Judas has rejected him as Messiah and is only identifying him as rabbi, 
Jesus stands up and reestablishes, I am Messiah. I know what you are doing. I see your heart. I do not just only see your actions. I see everything about you, Judas. You will be my betrayer. And so even though, again, Judas has rejected it, but in this moment, he comes face to face with it once again. He cannot ignore it. I mean, he can choose to walk away from it. He can choose to continue on the path that he is going. But Jesus, and like you said, maybe this is an extension of grace. I'm not sure. But it's like Jesus is taking one more opportunity to say, no, no, I am the Messiah. You can call me rabbi, but I am the Messiah. And I see you for who you are. With that, before Jesus identifies Judas as the one who will be the betrayer, Jesus does issue a woe statement, which highlights the the consequences of faithlessness. Like he says, woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And Jesus is saying, your decision to, to walk away, your decision to betray me as the Messiah that you know I am has consequences. And I think that we can even bring that just like for like straight into our conversation today, into our life today. And, and see that like Jesus has issued an invitation to us just as he issued an invitation to his disciples then to either I, like recognize him as Messiah or reject him as Messiah. And the woe statement remains. I think to add our, to add to that conversation, our, our table group talked a little bit about this woe statement and you bringing it up, brought it to mind again but the conversation surrounded the idea of was this like a, an eternal damnation statement or was this more an earthly condemnation recognizing the pain and torture that Judas would undergo as a result of his decision to continue through with this betrayal because we know that he's just absolutely broken by his decision and greatly regrets it. And so, well, I mean, we'll talk about that coming up, but I think in this, in this life, we have to recognize that it's not just like this eternal punishment. Like there are consequences even now, even now. And we also talked about how we often like to look at Judas and it's easy for us to identify with the disciples and say, Oh, shame on Judas. But how often do we really behave much more like Judas. And I know we talked about this a little bit last week, but I want to bring it to light again, because I don't want to miss this, that we have this temptation Mm -hmm. constantly at our doorstep to reject him as Lord, reject him as Messiah of my life. And that, that, that temptation or that opportunity to reject him is coming on a moment by moment basis. It's coming when I have to make big life decisions and it's coming when I have to respond in a conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think that that needs to, as Christians, like we have to keep that at the forefront of our minds and of our hearts as we seek to follow Jesus. Because when we lose sight of our fallibility, then we walk into a dangerous space of believing that we are holy that we we cannot that we can't sin. If we look at it comparatively, we're going to 
be like, well, I wouldn't blatantly do something as as damning as what Judas did. But as you point out, Natasha, it doesn't always come in these like extremes um, in the situation of Judas. And to your point about the 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 consequences, uh, like earthly earthly consequences of, for instance, the sin of Judas. I mean, if we look back all the way to Adam, really, that's sin had two consequences. It had a a a separation from God in in that eternal sense, but it also brought a separation in death. And so death came in two ways. It came physically and and spiritually speaking. And so, I mean, that 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 is just an example of it living at lived out like even to this day. We still have if we live in sin, we're separated from from God, but we also still face the the consequences of living in an earthly body that resulted from that sin. So we can't escape that. And so, um, I, I don't. I, I guess not not to like go to the extreme, but I, it it does have like there the implications are there that from the very beginning that there are earthly consequences and. It doesn't have to be so blatant as betraying Jesus for money. And maybe we do betray Jesus for money, but it be, can be so much simpler than that. Betray Jesus for time or for attention or... Sure. Yeah. A- anything anything that we give more value than God has become an idol in our life. And it's uncomfortable to see it through that lens, but that is the reality. And yet in the midst of this like weight, this heaviness, this recognition of a, the presence of a betrayer, Jesus turns to offer himself. He, he, right, we understand the next set of verses as the institution of the Lord's Supper where he redefines directly. It's not just inference now. He is redefining directly who he is what it means to be the Passover lamb and what it looks like to participate in, in his life and in the life that he is inviting them to. And he extends this to all of them. He doesn't nowhere in this text does it say he only extended it to 11. He extends this meal to all of them. He says, my body is broken for all of you. My blood is poured out for all of you. In the midst of the heaviness of betrayal and consequences, Jesus is who he is, becomes the hope. <laughs> well, and I think that hope is such a beautiful thing in indirect response to this conversation about Judas, because Jesus doesn't ask Judas to leave. Right. He extends this grace to him even now, even in the midst of his sin, even in the midst of his betrayal. He's still standing there with arms open, like the prodigal father, right? Waiting for for Judas to come home. We started our conversation today talking about how foreign it would be to be the certain man who extended the hospitality to the disciples and to Jesus to host the Passover meal. How much more foreign is it to us? to behave as Jesus behaved here at the end of this passage, where knowing somebody was actively in the process of betraying him, he invites him to his table and actually even says that the death that I am going to die 
is for you. He doesn't say it's because of you. He says it's for you. Could you imagine? Like, I, I don't, I don't think we could even begin to grasp that because that is not the world that we live in. That is not the way we are raised. I mean, we are raised that if somebody wrongs you, you have the right to respond. Well, and if not respond, at least remove yourself from their presence so you don't have to endure it any Ever further. again. But we know he's a different kind of king, and this is a different kind of kingdom. And if he doesn't do that, then everything that he's done to this point would mean nothing because he is the Passover lamb. His, the body that he's talking about is his body, not a lamb. The blood that he's talking about is his blood, not a lamb's blood. And this is the means by which the, the new covenant is fulfilled. And so not that that covenant before didn't matter, but this is a new one, and he's a different kind of king, and it's a different kind of kingdom. And he's calling them to participate just like he wanted them to just go out and, and do as he asked, as he commanded, go to this certain man. He's calling them to participate because this death is not only going to be his death, they're going to participate in this death. So while you were talking and as I was reflecting a, a little bit more on this part of the passage, the statement that Jesus makes earlier in Matthew, Matthew 16 where he invites the disciples to deny themselves daily and pick up their cross and follow him began to ring in my head. I think I've always read that passage and said they only fully begin to understand it once he is nailed once Jesus was nailed to the cross. But I think I look right here and all of a sudden my I was going to say this is the first time I see it but it's not. Like I see it again here and you could just think back through like all the episodes that we have read in Matthew so far, but I see a moment where Jesus is denying himself and he is picking up the cross before he actually reaches the cross for the purpose of following his father. Because even in his time, somebody who is betraying you, like you have the right to respond. But like you said, Derek, he is a different kind of king for a different kind of kingdom. And he's not just a king that tells people that they need to pick up their cross and he responds differently. He has invited them to deny himself, deny, deny themselves and pick up their cross. And he does the exact same thing right here. Standing face to face with his betrayer, he denies himself and picks up his cross. And I think about that invitation that Jesus has for us, you know, for his disciples in Matthew 16, that continues to be an invitation throughout this idea of, Jesus has asked us to deny ourselves and pick up our cross to follow him daily. That is a very tall invitation. It's an overwhelming invitation. It is, it is seemingly an impossible invitation. But when we bring in the conversation that we started with again to this one, this idea of preparation, this stretch to denying myself and picking up my cross daily, becomes a little more doable because as I am spending time in preparation, as I am spending time getting to know Jesus, as I am spending time listening to Jesus, as I am spending time speaking to Jesus, I can't help but 
begin to act more like him because he is rubbing off on me. And as I spend time in preparation intentionally with him, it becomes a little bit easier and a little bit easier and a little bit easier to deny myself and pick up my cross and follow him. So coming full circle to where we began, what would Jesus have us do this week to help us prepare to live this life that he has invited us to live? A life of denying ourselves and picking up our cross. Be sure to follow the Living Vertizano podcast to stay current on all our new releases. To learn more about the Church at Riverstone, visit us at thechurchatriverstone.org.